0: The National Archives podcast series, Secrecy and Government Records, by Professor M. R. D. Foote. Just before Easter, I was at a conference in London on the subject of faire l'histoire de la Résistance. When somebody remarked, "An odd thing about resistance, almost all the architects were resistors. Hardly any of them supported PETA that rather encouraged me coming here, having fought against Pentown, because I hoped that I would get an audience which would think more or less in parallel with me on a number of subjects. Peter said reminds us in his classic about Whitehall that secrecy is endemic in the English administrative system. We feel uncomfortable without it. The current trend towards freedom of information is of course telling the other way and making secrecy harder to maintain, but there still are occasions when it can't be wrong to have it, act of parliament or no. It remains important to describe the difference between secrecy, justified secrecy and obscurantism. Obscurantists are now entirely out of fashion. I must give you an example that still shocks me Of one which goes back to nineteen forty eight, when I was working as Stanley Morrison's assistant, doing the foreign policy chapters for him in the autobiography of the Times. The Times' autobiography runs by changes of editor, not by changes of world events, and this volume was running from nineteen twelve to nineteen forty one. And I needed to see a paper by Mr Balfour, never put into print. About how to defend this island against attack by sea and I wrote to the family and got their leaves to consult the Balfour papers which were already in the British Museum library and I put in for the document I wanted in advance in writing and when I turned up to see it the chap behind the counter said awfully oh, sorry would you mind coming back in six months time it's just got away to the binders <coughs> eight months time Still wasn't ready. And in nine months' time I'd asked for it again, I'm offered <coughs> something after somebody else. In ten months' time i asked for it, they said, you better go and see the keeper. And I was taken through to see the keeper, whose opening remark was, Oh, it's you who's making all this fuss about the self. <laughs> <laughs> as gently as I could. He said, any more trouble from you and that's where the welfare papers are going. <laughs> and he pointed to a blazing fire beside him. This was in the days before the Act. I said, you can't do that. He said, of course I can. And produced the British Museum Act, which gave the keeper right to hold, withhold, or destroy any document he held. He was good enough to explain why he was being so cautious about this particular document. He was not going to have any foreigner coming in and reading how to deal with us. He was going to make sure that nobody except his personal friends read that piece of paper and no, no, no. like <laughs> <laughs> Even the history of secrecy is sometimes hard to unravel. One of the still unresolved points about the diplomacy that preceded the Great War of 1914 in Europe is where the various responsible ministers got their intelligence from. Matthew Seligman produced a book published by the Oxford Press two years ago called Spies in Uniform on the work of the British military and naval attaches in Berlin early last century. He expounds how faulty weeding policies in the Admiralty and the War Office have destroyed most of those reports. But beavering round among other departments which were sent copies of, them, he's not compiled a complete set, but he's compiled enough to produce first a doctoral thesis and then a very readable book. If any of you don't know a pamphlet called My Perder Lady, Put out by the Foreign Office in 1984, in 1994 Foreign Office Research Department put it out free. I press it on you. It comes from a phrase used by Sir Edward Grey, which is relevant to this afternoon's subject. Grey was writing soon after taking office about his Secret Service Fund. "Quote: Not to be revealed to common official eyes, it is by Burger lady, veiled even from the lascivious gaze of." common treasury clerks. <laughs> that was over a century ago. Nearly half a century ago, I had a bear leader in the Foreign Office to guide me through maze of then unsorted as well as inadmissible papers of the Special Operations Executive, one of our wartime secret services. Before Mr. Townsend, and then people left store, reduced them to the comparatively orderly files of the HS series, which are now consultable a few yards away. Valiar showed him that the files of SOE's outstation near Algiers, that had worked into southern France in 1943-44, had all been burnt, burnt carefully, and the ash broke up afterwards in the boiler by the person in charge before he came back to England after the war even let <coughs> the big man who said, yes, I burnt the lot. It inter- had been pr- impressed on me that we were a secret service. We were not to keep any records. We didn't have to. I didn't see what we had to. Anything that was important, we had sent a copy anyhow to the Foreign Office. And any papers of interest from AMF section of S- a- SOE are to be found, if you dig deep enough, in the wastes of Foreign Office 371, unless they have been thrown away by weeders so that we that can't be of any importance. Barley also assured me that there were no files of MI9, the wartime escape sites. Sorry, they've all been destroyed. Jimmy Langley's perseverance unveiled them eventually, buried under my grandmother's milk returns, uh, collected by the the then Minister of Agriculture in a warehouse near Harris. And most of them are now, again, available next door in the wilderness of War Office 208, several thousand unindexed files. Good luck to you. <laughs> <laughs> They've been joined there by hundreds of followers of escapers' reports, which I was able to read in the archives of the United States Army Air Force at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama because they had been issued down to squadron intelligence officer in the United States Army Air Force after very careful laundry by MI9 but were unavailable over here. They are now available over here under the Walter Grave Initiative and again photocopies of them can be found in store. I never understood why they had not been available over here from the start because they had been so carefully they didn't start with, but there have been somebody behind the scenes that's secret, we can't let that out <laughs> there's no need to spell out to the public exactly how many secret services we've got or how they interrelate with each other if they don't remain secret they can't do their job there's a clause in the Freedom of Information Act that ought to cover this but one needs to remain vigilant. I give you an obvious instance. For generations past, it's been cast down rule in MI6, the Secret intelligence Service, that nobody who works in it is admissible ever. They must remain permanently hidden from public view. They might easily get assassinated if they weren't. Christopher Andrew discovered the entire order of battle of SIS and most of the personalities tucked away in the treasury files where nobody had thought of looking for them when he was preparing his very good book on Secret Service that came out of together. <laughs> you will allow a moment's excursions on this rule of anonymity. I have it on sound authority that the service still likes to use the following recruiting technique. When you've been working on somebody for some time and are almost at the point of signing him or her as elected, you may sense some last-minute hesitation and say, you're probably worried about what your family will think. Well, unless you're fool enough to tell them, your family will never know. I can assure you here and now across this table That even in the service, only I and my PA and C and C's PA will know your real identity. And we will keep quiet about it. If we didn't think you could keep your mouth shut too, we wouldn't be trying to recruit you. Now will you (laughs) come in? How much use are assurances like that going to be if people like you and me are let loose in the personal archives of SIS? As people can (coughs) be let loose now over there in HS nine the personal archives of members of SOE. Similarly, SOE was in wartime a thoroughly secret service. But the flights carried out for it by 138 and 161 Squadrons Royal Air Force from Dempster were most, almost all of them meticulously noted down in the squadrons' operational record books. All the operational record books went public automatically at the end of the war and Miss Overton-Fuller, constructing her attacks on SOE, was able to base them on what she had found in the three 138 squadron in Ertus 7. So, yet again, not until 1999, when I read a piece by Humidity in my own festschrift, did I discover that his squadron, 161, it had done more operations for SIS into France than it had done for SOE. For SOE, he went 29 times to France and came back unscathed in 1943. They did about 80 operations in France for SOE and about 100 for SIS, which Verity has now been allowed to set down. The flights for SIS were simply not recorded in the ORB. Nothing to consider. This bears out the old Secret Service proverb, still, I think, in use. If it's secret, boy, don't write it down. <laughs> it's very soundproofed secret service. That, of course, for <laughs> Something other about flights before SIS. Professor Norman Gibbs, professor, Chichene professor of military history at all Southerners, once long ago, in 1952, read a paper to the recent history which was a body of Oxford Don's interest in the history of the Russian Revolution. While he was preparing the first volume of the great six-volume series on British strategy in the war against Hitler, he, in his talk he mentioned that the firm of Western aircraft, the light aircraft had all bust, gone bust during the Great Depression and had been saved. Because the managing director had taken the last 20 pounds in the kitty and had taken C out to lunch with That's worth the day we could see a decent lunch for 20 pounds. <laughs> Over lunch, he persuaded C to dip in his kitty. <clears throat> and C produced the pittance, which kept Weston from going out of business altogether. They made aluminium beer barrels that are not sold. So that the firm didn't sink after all, it just kept afloat and were able to go back to aircraft manufacture in the middle 1930s and get the Westland Lysander off the drawing board and into the air. For the purpose for which the Lysander was originally intended, army cooperation, it was all but useless. But for secret service purposes it was ideal. A very skilled Lysander could land, a very skilled pilot could land inside Lysander at about twice the length of this rope worked very well for shifting people and packages to and fro. Oddly, no one seemed to have remembered this adventure when in, on the verge of the world within living memory, there was another verse crisis Crisis of as over 20 years ago. <coughs> A lot about how to handle flights of this kind has now come out in ancient memoirs. And in my own official history of SAP in France, in which there is an appendix by Vinity, the most vivid thing in the book about how to conduct the CANSI operation of this company. This won't have failed to be easy to the rich and busy international criminal class engaged in what is now called people smuggling, was called in my childhood the white safe trade. Ought I to have let it out? ought that to be left somber, quietly, in some not readily accessible archive. Again, among SOE's papers, in HS 755, are the lecture notes used at Camp X, which was SOE's training camp near Toronto, also very popular in OSS, the American equivalent of, of SOE, the Special Operations Branch of it, because if you went to Toronto, you got a medal for serving outside the United States. The <laughs> <laughs> camp is quite a threat to <laughs> <laughs> An enterprising public record office has put these records into print in a book called SOE Syllabus, edited by Dennis Rington, published by the public record office in 2001. So anybody can now put himself or herself through the training offered to an SOE agent. I gather the lectures in Toronto were identical with the lectures given at Beulet, now best known as the Montague Merchant Museum, where SOE agents, all pretends with SOE agents, they were trained for anything but being agents and Dropped. and they were told how to be an agent prop. You can now discover how to be an agent the <laughs> On this spot, I can hardly ask the question <laughs> I asked myself when this book, which me from review of this effort to have appeared. Quite a lot of these techniques are still perfectly usable. Why tell our Qaeda kind of What's going to hit The essential question to ask is covered by an old Latin tag. Q.I. bono yeah. Who is going to benefit from any particular revolution? If the country's enemies will benefit more than the country's friends, a patriotic civil servant will know what to do. They can give you an example of a properly kept secret. More than once, while working as an official historian, I tried to get hold of some papers bearing on aspects of radio security. My requests were, quite politely, <coughs> equally firmly, simply ignored. As an historian, I was put out. As a former intelligence officer, I was delighted. <laughs> <laughs> we still need these ciphers. We still need radio interception and parallel technical skills, traffic analysis and so on. They are necessary tools for securing the nation's safety against enemies of various sorts, terrorist, criminal or simply plain foreign. They've been complicated by the arrival of the internet, but their essentials remain intact it may advance knowledge but it will not advance security. I repeat that it may advance knowledge but it will not advance security to spill any beans about this sort of thing at all. Hinsley's magisterial series about British strategic intelligence in the Second World War, published six volumes in seven parts by HMSO between 1979 and 1990, says nothing at all about decipher method and quite right there is a classic instance from the renewed troubles in Afghanistan in the autumn of 2001 a court in the southern United States was trying a man for treacherous relations with Osama bin Laden it came out in court in public that the American security Office knew within a furlong or so where bin Laden was because they could track him through his mobile telephone. A full security officer let this out in court. <coughs> a full reporter put it in his report of the court's proceedings. A full editor published the report. Within 48 hours, Bin Laden, no sort of fool, had ceased to answer his mobile telephone. <laughs> From that day, nobody on our side has known for certain the reasons. <laughs> I don't know a clearer example of ill-placed admission. All the deaths in Afghanistan in the autumn of uh, of 2001 on both sides are due to that single full security. Civil escape devices which a bright prisoner could use to help himself out of a prisoner of war camp have now become public because prisoners have bursted by in their uncensored memoirs. The RAF Museum in Hendon which I trust you all go regularly with your children, has got a whole case full of escape devices. When Langley and I were writing our book on MI9, the escape service, we knew of several more escape devices, of which we made no mention because they were perfectly well usable again. Why spill the beans? It gave me an odd turn when I found one of them laid out with explanatory detail of a little card in a resistance museum in an Allied country visible to the Russian the Chinese and any other interested (laughs) military (laughs) attaches perhaps to the undoing of future prisoners do consider carefully this point about what may crop up in other files or in other places that will hinder you if you try to keep a secret think of the impossibility Of trying to wipe a person out of the national record altogether, a word with the Registrar General might suppress his birth. Whether it was extra trouble, reprinting the volumes that have already been issued, suppressing it quietly online. But what if his parents had put his birth into a newspaper? What if he? What of all the references to him in census records when he was a child? If he went to a university, he's likely to have appeared in some sort of classes or other, certain to have had student cards, it seemed to him. He's likely to have had at least one bank account, to have written checks, made of own stocks, made of own shares, in his own name, even the notorious and notorious secretive, Colonel Claude Dancy, number two in the Secret Intelligence Service during the war against Hitler and SIS's official liaison officer with SOE, no need to look for other spies from SIS in SOE. Dancy could not not view the photograph of himself in the charge of that Record Office in the papers of the Passport Office, which was finally included in the life of Conan's said by Reed and Fisher, published in 1984. Again, take weapons research. I avoid the prickly parts of patent law, of which I know practically nothing. 40 years of debate that raged in the War Office about how to replace that admirable killing machine, the short model Lee Enfield rifle, which raged from 1911 till it was replaced in 1951, are of interest to military historians. There's no need to hush them up. (coughs) What about the Admiralty's anti-submarine files, crammed with undeveloped devices, one or other of which might be the very thing? to deal with an enemy submarine in some future war. As for the Air Force's target lists, which must have been compiled during the Cold War, is it really sensible to throw them open to general inspection when the countries that were once hostile show signs of turning hostile again? As a general rule of conduct, I conclude with this. I suggest to you a variant on those notes from Camp X near Toronto. Follow common sense with an extra crystal security thrown in. If throwing a file open will endanger your country, <coughs> find a sound excuse to keep it closed or throw it away securely. <laughs> Don't shred it, set fire to it, and break up the ash. <laughs> This event was recorded live on the 1st of May 2008 at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright of the National Archives. All rights reserved.